In your Bibles, in 2 Peter chapter 3, we need to remember Peter's intent, his intent of writing this letter to the, to the churches, to the Christians in, in Asia Minor, was to encourage this church. Now in 2 Peter, particularly in the context of eschatology, right, the second coming of Christ. In chapter 2, Peter goes right at the throats of false teachers because one of their main denials was Christ isn't coming back. They accused Peter that all of that was just a myth. And Peter deliberately in chapter 3 answers the questions that they have, they are asking condescendingly, and he better yet, he dismantles their arguments. The scoffers, right? The scoffers of the Bible, those who are scoffing at the Bible. And we talked about last time to understand why we have to wait. We saw Peter showing us three amazing characteristics of God in verses 8 through 10. That God is transcendent, that God is patient to save, and that as sovereign, he will certainly fulfill his promise to come back, and we will see him when he comes back. And when he does, in verse 10, it will be very devastating. We'll talk more about that this morning. This morning in our passage, the church is to be encouraged again, as this passage just flows together, right? It's meant, meant to be read together, to continue to remain faithful as the church as we wait, as we wait for Christ's return. Looking now to 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 11. Since these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people you ought to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening and the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish at and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them from these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. This is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy inspired and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. Last time we were together in 2 Peter, we asked the question, why do we have to wait? And Peter answered that question for us. If we know the reasons then why we are to wait then, and they are deeply rooted within the character and nature of God, his grace, his mercy, his patience, his transcendence, then I think the next natural question for Christians who are eagerly waiting is to ask, what do we do in the meantime? 
What do we do while we are waiting? What are we supposed to be doing? Now, I think that most of us would say that patience and, and waiting are probably not our strong suit. Right? We, we're, we're probably not the most patient all the time in, in waiting. We're all impatient on some level. We like to blame our impatience on people and situations, and clearly there's some justification for that. But what those situations really are revealing is the impatience that was already there. Now, some of us may be more patient than others, and God bless you. I'm thankful for that. You're good examples for the rest of us. But don't we all want more patience? We all need to learn what it means to be patient and how to wait longer for things and know how to wait. Waiting is difficult. Having patience is difficult, especially now living in a culture where virtually anything is right at our disposal within seconds, if not within minutes. Some of you may not even remember the day when you used to have to wait to go home before you can make a phone call. Some of you may not remember that you would have to find this thing called a phone book that was bigger than a Bible. Now, your phone books right here are kind of small, where they were. They don't even make it more. Phone book, right, was a, man, it was like that. You had to look things up to find the plumber, to find a neighbor's phone number or an address. Do you remember when you used to have to wait months and months for a movie to come out on video, VHS none, nonetheless? You, some of you don't even know what a VHS is. How about a DVD? Probably don't know what that is. No, my kids, well, they do know a DVD because we have a DVD player we use when we, in the car when we travel. Now you just go on iTunes or Amazon Prime Video and you're streaming within seconds. Patience is tough. Because we want things our way when we want it, right? There's this ideal, this sense that we all have of this instant gratification. And that instant gratification culture is all around us. Nowadays, Amazon Prime two-day delivery is just too slow. When are those drones going to start dropping junk at my front door? Google search can be slow. LTE on our phones are too, is too slow. We demand 5G. But waiting in this life, no matter how technologically advanced we get, no matter how speedy Amazon gets, may, waiting is a major part of this life and it still can be very frustrating. Waiting to get out of class, waiting in the doctor's office, waiting for a table at a restaurant, waiting in line at the post office or a store, waiting in a car for, for three hours to get home from a family trip when you thought we would be floating in Jetson cars by now. Waiting on a friend or a family member who's running late. Even now, your patience is waning with me. Brother, when are you going to preach the text? We're going to get to that. Let me give you another illustration. I'm no playwright or even someone who's known to go to the theater and probably won't as much. 
but there is a really good play that's about waiting. And this play, written, uh, uh, well, it, it debuted in 1953 in Paris, written, by, and written and directed by a man named Samuel Beckett, and this play is called Waiting on Godot, Waiting for Godot. And in this play, there are two main characters. One character's name is Vladimir, not a very popular name these days, and another one is Estragon, right? That's a weird name, French, right? And, and these two, these two characters, the, the curtains raise, and, and you see these two characters, and, and they look homeless. They look like bums, right? They're raggedy clothes, shirts untucked, I mean, you know, or half untucked and dirty, and shoes falling uh, uh, apart. And, and actually, if you can go on YouTube, you can see, um, I believe it's Sir Ian McKellen and, um, well, he's a Sir too, Patrick Stewart, right? Those two act the characters, and they do it more in a comedic way. It's kind of funny. Um, but these two guys, they're on the streets, they're bums, and they're, they're waiting on the street. In the first act, Vladimir basically says this in the very opening line. He says, all we're doing here on the streets as these homeless people is we're just killing time. We're doing nothing. And the conversation continues between these, these two characters as they are struggling about waiting and having patience because they're waiting for Godot. They're waiting for this guy named Godot, and they're complaining all day. But as the day goes on, grumbling turns into, into despair, and then as night comes around, they realize Godot's not coming today. And they leave disappointed and despair, and yet they say to themselves, well, what are we going to do tomorrow? And the other one says, well, we got to come back. And so that's exactly what they do. Moving into Act 2, the play virtually goes on with the same scene. And of course, they have interactions with some other characters, but they're waiting over and over again all day long, practicing the same conversations over again, bored, impatient, tired, complaining. And yet they keep waiting for Godot. Now, this gets to Beckett's whole point of his play, because it's called a, a play of absurdity. And this is one of the things he quotes in saying about this play. He says, the boredom of living is replaced by the suffering of being. Let me say that again. The boredom of living is replaced by the suffering of being. Now, I think the conversation that these guys had sound a lot like the, the questions that the scoffers were asking back in verse 4 and in chapter 3, they ask the question, where is the promise of his coming? Where's Jesus? Where's this one that you said has promised to come? But Peter not only tells us why we are to wait and what we are waiting for, but he tells us what to do while we are waiting. That hopefully we're not like Vladimir, just killing time and just giving into boredom that eventually leads to despair. Thankfully, as we believe, God's word answers that question. What do we do while we're waiting? And I believe Peter is telling us three things to pursue holiness patient productivity and purposeful anticipation there's your alliteration for the for the month 
patient productivity, pursue holiness, and purposeful anticipation. You see, God is sovereign. And though he exists outside of time, we see in verse 8, and that he is transcendent, he absolutely still cares about how each and every one of us use our time. How we are, how we are awaiting. The Lord has called us to obedience. He has called us to obedience and holiness and to productivity. If you have been a Christian for any length of time and you've spent um, any amount of time just reading God's Word and studying God's Word and you've listened to preaching throughout the years, then, then this is not a new point for you that a Christian is to be pursuing holiness and godliness. That is not anything that is new, nor is it groundbreaking for any of us. From the beginning of Scripture all the way to the end, one way or another, holiness and godliness are, are for those that God has created in his image, that we were made to reflect his image in his holiness and in his godliness. Unfortunately, the church today is not known for their holiness. Christians are not known for their holiness. They are not known for their godliness. Put something else there. They're known for their love. And love is good, but we're called to be holy. And in holiness, we're going to love as God loves, holy. But rather, the church has become known for sin and the justification of sin instead of the righteousness of Christ. The church has become known for the acceptance of sin the spurning of holiness. The church has become known for hypocrisy. I don't want us to harp on others. That's too easy. And even more than that, that's unproductive. Because that produces pride in our hearts and helps us to overlook the holes in our holiness. But rather, we need to look closely at ourselves. Jesus warns us of this. To look at the plank in your own eye instead of the speck in others. In verse 11, Peter says, since all things are thus to be dissolved. Well, what, is, what is he talking about? Well, it's what he has said in verse 7. By the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And in verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And when the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And so also in verse 12, the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. And what we've seen over the weeks, that this is the day of the Lord. This is the day of Christ. This is the second coming of Christ. And what Peter firmly paints for us, brothers and sisters, is that the day of judgment is going to be ugly. And when I mean ugly, it's going to be filled with utter destruction. I mean, look at the words that he's using. The heavens will melt as they burn. 
the earth will be burned up and dissolved and pass away with a roar. This will be catastrophic. This will be utter destruction with not one piece unfelt by the wrath of God poured out upon the corrupt world. The wiping away of everything. All the works of the world, as he says in verse, I believe it's verse 12, no, verse 10, excuse me, that they will be exposed for what they really are as filthy rags. And Peter continues then in, in verse 11, he says, so, so in light of that, right? So in light of this, that, that which is coming, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? So as you are waiting on the Lord, how should we wait? We ought to be living lives of holiness and godliness. He goes into verse 14 and he says it like this. He says, therefore, beloved, there's that term of endearment for the church. Since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and to be at peace or be at peace. And we're going to break down those verses in just a moment, but essentially they're telling us the same thing. Pursue holiness. Pursue godliness. Be holy. In verse 11, the, the, the verb there is ought. You see that there? Ought. You ought to be holy and godly. Ought implies this. It implies that, that holiness is necessary. Right? You ought to be doing this, right? We all know the things that we ought to be doing, right? And what are those things? Are the things that we're supposed to be doing, or are they the things that we shouldn't do? Ought are the things that we should be doing, things that we are required, things that we are obligated to do, obligated to obedience. And why should we do it? Why is there an ought there? Because we have been commanded by God as God's people to be holy because he is holy. Christ said, be perfect, because your Father in heaven is perfect. Ought to be holy, because it is God who has commanded his people to be holy. And as his creatures, we are to obey him, because he is our king and our God. There's the ought. In verse 14, the verb is what? Be diligent. Be diligent. And being diligent means to be zealous. It means to be eager. It means to have a, an intense desire to, to do something, to perform in a certain way, to, to finish. Be diligent. It's to do something with, with no reluctance or, or delay or, or any hesitancy. Be diligent. And what is that implying? Ought is implying the command of the holy, sovereign God, and be diligent is implying the right desire to please our Heavenly Father. And these two verbs, simultaneously working together, brings together duty and delight.
Honor your father and mother. Honor is not just about obedience. Because you ought to because they are your because it's your father and it's your mother. But honor also implies the attitude to be diligent in obedience because you love your father and your mother. And so you want to honor them. In the context of this, this chapter in Second Peter, the context of our ought to be holy and to be diligent and being found spotless is not just because God is sovereign and God is holy, that certainly motivates us and is our call, but the motivation and context is eschatological judgment. When we know about the holy and righteous future judgment of God, then as Christians, our motivation while we wait is not just to sit around and live like everyone else, but to pursue holiness and godliness. What we like to also call Christ-likeness. One thing that Peter makes very clear here, brothers and sisters, and one thing we need to remind ourselves often is that this world is temporary. It's going to be burned up. It's going to dissolve. It's going to melt. It's going to pass away in a catastrophic fashion. And Peter, in his writing, his, his intent is not to give us all the details of the second coming of, of Christ, and we see other details in other parts of the Bible, but that doesn't mean the details he does describe for us are just there to satisfy a curiosity or to create debates among Christians. The point behind it is that in knowing that this is the, going to be the outcome of this world, that this is a motivation for us to live a new quality of life that does not look like the failing, sinful, temporary world. Because there's futility just all around us. And with that eternal perspective, that changes the way that we live each second. It changes how we live each moment. It changes how we live each hour and, and days and the things that we, we plan and the decisions that we make through, throughout the day. With that perspective, it puts holiness and godliness as the goal. In 1 Peter, we saw this, this call to Christians to holy lives, to, to good conduct, because they are to... This is how they are to endure through, through persecution and suffering. And we know that holiness means to be, to be set apart. And that absolutely is true. But Peter defines holiness continually in, a, in an application state in 1 Peter, practically in the Christian life, by saying, Sanctif be sanctified. Through the idea of sanctification, growing in Christ, in Christ's likeness. He defines it as it means to embrace suffering for the sake of the gospel. It means to have a sincere love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. It means to be subject to the authorities that the Lord has put over you. And it means practically serving one another in the body of Christ. 
holiness, being set apart. And notice how he couples holiness with godliness, because these are two different things. They're certainly, they're, they're not uh, exclusive. They run together, but they mean different things. And Peter has already told us that, that God has given us everything in life pertaining to what? Life and godliness. And what is godliness? Godliness means to reflect the character of our creator. To image him, right? This is the, this is the, the mirror image, right? When, when we look in the mirror, we, we don't see us, we see Christ. That's hard for us to do, right? Unless we're kind of a weirdo, but... But the, but the way that our lives are reflecting the image and nature of Christ and these things that we want to image, that, that make us image Christ and, and, and the Lord, we call these in theology, we call these communicable attributes. And, and these are the, the attributes, the characteristics that even as God's people, we can share in them because he has given them to us. God possesses them infinitely, and he possesses them perfectly, yet we as his, his followers can display them finitely. That is knowledge, wisdom, truth, godliness, love, or goodness, excuse me, grace, mercy, holiness, righteousness, justice. You put all those things together, and we are practicing these things. That is godliness. Godliness is reflecting God, and this is the character and nature of God. Knowledge, wisdom, truth, goodness, love, grace, mercy, holiness, righteousness, and justice. You need some more? Go to the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemaker, and those who are persecuted. In verse 14, he says to be diligent to be found, meaning when he comes. When he comes, be diligently found in these things without spot without spot and without blemish. And that's, that's Old Testament language. That's describing the kind of sacrifice that, that ought to be brought when sacrificing to the Lord, without spot, without blemish, the perfect sacrifice. And in Hebrews 9.14, we see that Christ was the, that kind of perfect sacrifice. And in Christ, by the power of his Holy Spirit, who has transformed us, because we have been made new, we are made spotless and without blemish as our older brother, Christ. For that is why we have been saved, to no longer remain in sin, but to live a life that is found in the light and not in darkness. I think in context, again, these false teachers as we saw in chapter 2 and now in chapter 3, these false teachers, again, they have this false view of eschatology, meaning, they, again, they, they didn't have one, really. They denied it, and, they, they, and then because they didn't have an eschatology, they taught and they lived licentious lifestyles. Go back to 
chapter 2. They had an insatiable appetite for sin and, and lust and, and greed. And to them, according to their view, is that, is that if, if God is not going to judge, if God is not going to judge us, and, and if Christ has saved us by, by grace, then why not give into the flesh? Why not enjoy all things of this world to gratify the flesh? And when you remove or you suppress the reality of God's word, the truth of God's word, and in particular here, that righteous judgment is coming, then no wonder sin is the outcome. No wonder sin is what they're diligent in and that they ought to be doing. And rather than being spotless, they are spotted. And rather than being without blemish, they have plenty of blemishes. Does your life reflect the truth of the coming judgment and that you ought to be holy and godly and diligent to be found spotless and blameless? It's all too easy, brothers and sisters, and we all know this. I think we all could admit to this. And it's easy to be short-minded in waiting. To become complacent. To become lazy. To become apathetic. To delight more in the world than we do in Christ. And therefore, to be apathetic in holiness and godliness. It is easy to delight more in what the world has to offer than what has been told of us and given to us in the gospel in Christ. To love what is temporary rather than what is eternal. I think this is a strong encouragement, if not a warning to us brothers and sisters, to pursue holiness and godliness. To not waver in holiness and godliness. And second, while we are waiting, waiting in holiness and godliness, we wait with patient productivity. When I go to appointments, or if I know that I have to go somewhere and I have to wait, go somewhere in an office or a waiting room or whatever, I always want to think ahead. And I want to bring something with me so that I can be productive, or at least feel like I'm being productive, while I can wait. I can certainly, like everyone else these days, numbingly pass time by endless and fruitless scrolling on my phone or some game. I was in a, a doctor's office this week and noticed people who were uh, of, of all ages, but significantly in this particular office, they were much, much, much older than me. And it was kind of funny to me that they were all scrolling on their phones. I thought that was interesting. But when, we get, when I get to places like that, I want, to make, I want to bring a book. I want to bring a notebook. I want to try to take notes. I want to think. I want to try to help pass the time, but certainly not waste the time. Now, I'm not saying I do not waste time, because ashamedly, I admit to you that I do. But when I have to wait, and I know I have to wait, I want to wait productively, with, be productive. And as Peter says, he's told us that we now live in the last days. 
And if these days are clearly numbered, then why would we want to waste them? I was watching an interview of a fellow who was just diagnosed with, um, man, I wish I could remember name now. It's a, I can't remember, but it's, it attacks the brain stem um, like Lou Gehrig's, right? I think that's what it is. And, and basically a doctor, and he happened to his, fa his family members, and he says, I only have like a year to live. And, and, and his thing is, if I only have a year to live, that's like, I can, I can literally count the moments. I can literally count and say, this is it, so what do I want to do? And he went on and talked about some of the things that he wanted to do. But if we were living in these last days, are we not to be productive in them? Now, certainly there's aspect of we are waiting in these last days. Peter tells us three times in this passage, waiting. Verse 12, verse 13, verse 14. But while we are waiting, we're not to be like Vlad and Estragon and just do nothing and complain, but we are to wait productively, be producing. And as part of that Christian productivity is certainly pursuing holiness and, and godliness, and that is never a waste of time or, or effort, though it seems hard, and sometimes in that, the trenches of doing so, it seems difficult and like we're, we're getting nowhere. It doesn't happen overnight. It's a lifetime of growing in Christ. But also in our waiting, we can be patiently productive to the glory of God. In verse 15, I love this. This is good. He says, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in his letter when he speaks from in them as these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant, unstable, they twist to their own destruction as they do with other scripture. Now, there's a few things going on here in this passage. Let's address those. First, uh, we're, we're taken back again to the divine character of God, aren't we, in verse, uh, that's, that's showed to us first in verse 9. And that is what? That God is patient. And so we're taken back to the patience of God again so that we, we count on it. We would reflect on it. We would meditate on uh, deeply God's patience in our own salvation. Remember, the, the reason why Christ has not returned yet has, is, not, is because God's patience to save sinners. And the second thing we see here is Peter brings in Paul. Isn't that interesting? He brings in Paul's writings, and he says, he says that, that uh, all the things that I have written about God's love and his patience, his grace, his justification, his mercy, salvation, the eschatology, the coming of Christ, they are all along the same lines as, as Paul's writing. And that tells us there's a, there's a continuity within Scripture, even between these apostles, right? There's a continuity that Peter says, our beloved brother has said. But also look what he says about Paul's writings. He says that he wrote according to the wisdom given to him. And what's the wisdom? Well, Peter had already told us what that wisdom is in chapter 1, verse 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what is Peter doing here? He is, he is affirming Paul's writing that it is inspired by the Holy Spirit. 
And in verse 16, he even calls them scriptures. And everywhere in the Bible, almost every single time the word scripture is used, grapha is used, it is, to, it is almost always talking about God's word. And certainly here is the exact same, is the same case. And third, Peter admits out loud how most of us feel when we read Paul's letters. That they are sometimes, sometimes, sometimes just a, a little hard to understand. So there's, there's some comfort for me. Okay, there's some comfort here who for me, who, who I, I know I'm, I'm not very smart, and, and sometimes when I'm reading Paul, and, and ashamedly more than just Paul, I am beating my head against my desk, and I'm, I'm literally just having this wrestling match with Paul saying, what are you doing here? What are you saying here? Not angrily, you know, not like I'm losing my faith, but just like, help me understand. But what Peter says here is no matter how difficult it, it is to interpret, what he's saying here also is there's never an excuse for misinterpretation. Never. Meaning to us, me, who's a little bit more dumb, we need to wrestle a little bit more. We need to be preparing ourselves to wrestle a little bit more. We need to grow up and to be men who understand God's word and wrestle with it. That's a, and I'm saying to you this because it's a good thing. It's a good thing. It'll always be worth it in the end. Fourth, Paul's writing comes up here. Because what Peter is saying is that they were using Paul's words incorrectly, about misinterpreting them intentionally. They were distorting the truth. They were twisting them, as it says. These ignorant and unstable, they were twisting the scriptures to, to say what they want, and particularly what Paul says, by, by grace you have been saved, right? You're saying, you've been saved by grace. Oh my God, I've been saved by grace. I can do whatever I want. Live a, license, a life of licensure and do whatever I want to do. They twist God's word to satisfy their own guilt, their own goals and desires for sin and whatever else false teachers teach. This wasn't some minor doctrinal error because maybe because it was a difficult to understand. This wasn't some misspoke, misspeaking, right? They weren't just misspeaking. They weren't genuine questions that they were asking, but they were intentional misinterpretations to justify their immorality. And what we see here again, Peter says, they twist it to their own destruction. Enough about false teachers. Because what Peter is saying in these two verses, I believe, is used to encourage the church. To encourage us to patiently be productive because all the things that Peter wrote, all the things that Paul wrote, all these deep, glorious theological doctrines, they have very practical applications and implications for the Christians, for the Christian life that help us press on faithfully while we wait. Sort of like having a good book in a doctor's office. We believe that God not only has purposes for us while we wait or promises for us while we wait, 
but also our waiting is one of God's great means of accomplishing sanctification in our lives. I like this quote from the Scottish hymn writer and minister uh, George Matheson. He said, "We we commonly associate patience with laying down. Yet there is patience that I believe is harder, the patience that can run. It is power to work under stress, to continue under hardship, to have anguish in your spirit, and still perform daily talks. This is a Christian thing. The hardest thing that most of us are called to exercise is patience. But not in the sickbed, but in the street. I simply want to put that we are to patiently be productive in two ways. First, by the great word of, our reform, of the reformers before us who said, we are to vivify Christ, and that is vivification. Usually coupled with mortification, mortification and vivification, mortification of sin is putting death to sin, and that was certainly, I hope, implied in our first point, that in pursuing holiness and godliness and being without spot and without blemish is putting death to sin in your life. John Calvin defined vivification as the comfort produced by faith when a person ashamed by the consciousness of his sin and struck with the fear of God casts his eyes on God's goodness and mercy on the grace and salvation which are in Jesus Christ and comforted is able to breathe and then takes heart again and practically returns from death to life. Meaning that the gospel, when they believe the gospel, even in sin, they repent of their sin, and they trust in the gospel, and they rest in the work of Christ, and that brings about desire and affection. Like the child who has offended their parents and has come to them and asked for forgiveness, and the daddy who pulls them in the lap and says, I love you, I forgive you, sit here. And they cry on your shoulder. The gospel, that's the work of the gospel. And the child doesn't run in fear to that kind of father. The child looks up, even with tears in their eyes, in delight and love, and says, thank you, father. I, don't, I was not supposed to get emotional here, but think that's, that's, that's vivification. That's vivifying Christ. That's looking to, to, to him. Romans 8, 6 tells us, how to vivify. It says, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Vivifying is setting your mind on the spirit, which is life and peace. I want life, I want flourishing, and I want peace in this troubled world. I want peace in this this troubled soul that's always bearing the weight of not only my own sin, but feels like he has to bear the weight of the world sometimes. Set your minds on the spirit, because if you set your mind on the flesh, is death. How we vivify is we set our minds on the work of the spirit. And what Peter is telling us to do in verse 15 is to count the patience of God and salvation. What does he mean? He means set your mind on the God who has patience on you and has saved you. In Colossians 3, one of my most favorite chapters in all the Bible, 
We see in verses 1 through 3, he says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above. Above. Not below, not next to us, but, but above. Not on the things that are on earth. Verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Listen, these are the things that false teachers are twisting. And what glorious truth they're twisting here. Because what it's calling us to do is to set our minds on the things that are above. Brothers and sisters, when was the last time you truly contemplated the grace of God? You turn off your phone, you turn off your TV, you put your iPad to the side, and you contemplated the grace of God. You thought about grace and salvation and the patience of God, the reality of, of the gospel that he has made you a new creation in Christ. When was the last time you have set your minds to the things that are above? To thank him, to thank him truly, not just for the things that he has given to you in this life, but to thank him and to delight in him because of him. Vivify Christ because of him. And when we do that, that, that stirs love. That stirs desire, it stirs diligence, it stirs passion, it stirs prayer and scripture reading and memorizations, love and love for, uh, love for God and love for each other, love for the church and care for one another. And the second way, and this comes out of vivification, brothers and sisters, is because God is patient and showing patience, then, then let us share the gospel with others. That creates a humility and a mercy and an understanding and a compassion in such a way that we want to share the gospel with others. If judgment is coming, then we must share the gospel because we know that God is still saving the lost. Because as of right now, and it's not too late, Patient productivity isn't playing on our phones. It's not grumbling while we wait. But it's keeping on to run the race that is set before us. Striving to leave behind that which needs to be left behind. And looking to Christ and setting our minds before us on Christ. Vivifying him and sharing the gospel with the lost. And lastly, I wanted to save this point for last. I was not skipping verse 13. And that is, brothers and sisters, we would have purposeful anticipation of his coming. We believe it. We pray for it. We desire it. We share the gospel because we know he is coming. But we also purposefully anticipate it. In verse 12, again, we are reminded of the coming of the day of, of God. The, uh, the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and melt. 
And we've already said that, that a, a strong motivation for, for holiness and godliness and is, is, is that divine judgment is coming, right? That eschatological judgment is, is coming, but also there is another strong motive for us, and that is his promise there in verse 13. And as we read, read that this isn't a promise that Peter just made up on his own, but we know from Isaiah 65 that we read this morning that this is God's promise from the beginning. Verse 13, but according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And to do and to do that, what we are waiting for is we are waiting for what? We are waiting for his final redemption. And this final redemption is, is a part of the gospel. It's not separate from the gospel, but it is a part of the gospel, just as judgment for, for sin and the loss, right? As well as eternal joy for, for Christians and for believers. This is what we proclaim this world, including ourselves, nature, flesh, is all subjected to futility in the fall, and it will be judged, and it will be burnt up. But the, but the gospel says that God is going to make all things new. He's going to redeem what was once broken and corrupted by the fall with a perfect new heavens and new earth. And Jesus, throughout his life, he showed us the reality of this new heavens and new earth and what this new existence would, would look like with every miracle that he gave and did was a preview of a coming attraction that we would soon experience in his coming. The resurrection of Christ proves this future feature that one day all in Christ will experience. And we will not just, brothers and sisters, we will not just populate heaven. But we will be a real people living in a real creation in righteousness. Free from corruption and sin and pain and fear and death. It will be a world renewed by an indescribable beauty and glory because the Lord himself will be with us. Revelation 21, we're going to read that at the end of our service, but it impacts this even more. It impacts this glorious hope that we have in God, that he is going to renew, restore. He's going to renovate, this, the, renovate the world into a new heavens, into a new earth with no more sin, no more destruction, and where only righteousness dwells. And, and though God is going to completely destroy and melt this world and universe, there will be continuity with it in a way that we will understand and feel right at home. In Revelation 21, verse 2, the Lord will build a new Jerusalem that will come from heaven, a perfect city of joy and delight, a perfect community of all of those who are in Christ. To, uh, who are in Christ to dwell together in perfect harmony and love. You remember in the book, the gospel, the little green book that we re we've read together, and the writer Ray Ortland, he talks about how, uh, in, in this, really in this point, he says how in that this new city is going to be far glorious than any city that we can ever imagine. The cities that we create are boring. 
even those who, who, who think that Las Vegas is like the pinnacle of joy and fun, it will be absolute boredom compared to the new city that he will create and give us in the new Jerusalem. And even as the church now, even in us, brothers and sisters, as frail as we are, as weak as we, we, we may seem, we portray a restored and renewed community to a very fractured world. A world that is in turmoil. In Revelation 21, verse 3 and 4, this new earth and new city, God himself will be with us. Peter says that's where righteousness will dwell. We will be in his presence. Not because we stopped sinning and that we fixed ourselves and we were able to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, but rather because of the work of Christ alone. Revelation 21, verse 5, the one who is seated on the throne says this. He says, I am making all things new. Brothers and sisters, there is nothing small, there is nothing petty about what we believe when it comes to the gospel. But rather, it is a gospel that creates a very strong people. A church that is now in the light a church that is resilient in a fallen world. Because we don't believe something small. We believe something massive. And the reason why we believe this will happen is simply because it is God. Because it is a work of God. And as Jesus said that he is making all things new, John reflects in that verse, he says, the one who is seated on the throne. That's why we believe this is going to happen, because the one who is seated on the throne has said it. Can you feel that this world is just not our hope? Can you anticipate rather than this glorious renovation that is coming. And I use renovation because I couldn't think of anything better. Again, remember, moron. Renovation, right? I mean, that, that it's coming. I don't, I don't know about you, but, but I am truly grateful for this life. And there are good things that we experience in this life. I'm thankful for my family and for my wife and my children. I'm thankful for you all as, our, as the church. And I know that I'm truly blessed by, by the Lord. He has been nothing but good and patient with me. And I hope you feel the same. However, with each passing day, this world continues to show how broken it really is. And how temporary it really is. And creation is just crying out. Come. It's crying out for redemption. I hate sin. I hate the effects of sin. And the consequences of sin. I hate bearing the weight of sin. And guilt. And I hate bearing the weight of shame. Of sin that this world has put. That hoists on us. And I know you feel the exact same way. You feel the effects. But we know this world and this life is not it. We are living for something greater that's coming. 
where all suffering and pain and sin will be no more and righteousness will dwell forever. We have an eternal hope in Christ. Oh, how glorious the cross is that he has provided for us, not he's provided for us salvation and redemption for all eternity in these glorious promise where we will dwell with him forever. We have been forgiven and made new. Brothers and sisters, even in this life, we have purposeful anticipation for the new heavens and the new earth. So beloved, beloved sisters, beloved brothers, we're not waiting around like Vladimir and his dragon. And as absurd as Beckett meant it to be, our life in Christ is not. It is not boredom, but we have been brought into the greatest story ever told. It is not a life of absurdity, nor is it a one of despair, because we have hope in Christ alone. So let us renew together the great joy of pursuing holiness, patient productivity, and purposeful anticipation. And let us renew the idea that we are doing that together as the body of Christ to the glory of Christ. Love you all. And all God's people say,